What's up, QAA listeners? The fun games have begun. I found a way to connect to the internet. I'm sorry, boy. Welcome, listener, to the 250th chapter of the QAA podcast, the Giant of Kandahar episode. As always, we are your hosts, Jake Rakotansky, Julian Fields, and Travis View. Hello, friends. This week, we're joined by Noah Colwin and Brendan James of the Blowback podcast to discuss two equally important issues. One, did U.S. forces fight and kill a redheaded giant in the Afghan province of Kandahar? And two, is it possible to connect the dots about the United States' role in Afghanistan and the Middle East without resorting to stories about giants? Brendan, Noah, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Howdy. The latest season of Blowback is all about U.S. involvement in Afghanistan. In previous seasons, you guys covered Iraq, Cuba, Korea. First off, great job, fellas. I learned a lot from this season. It was rough. I mean, it's like just the depths of the cruelty and malfeasance is rough, but it was also probably the best thing I've heard in terms of giving context to that war. So congrats, fellas. Thank you. Thank you. For listeners interested, they can get the whole season plus a bunch of extras at blowback.show, which is not not a porn website. So go check it out. I wouldn't say that. I mean, yeah, I mean, well, like, you know. It is, okay, you have a bit, something going on there? You know, Dick pics? you said extras, you know, just click and find out only frags mm-hmm. the structure of this episode will match the two questions i posed earlier in the first part we'll explore the giant of kandahar a deranged story which originated on the coast to coast am radio show in 2008 and has endured until today in the second part we'll get a little more serious and speak to Noah and brendan about some very tangible dot connecting when it comes to u.s foreign policy and its effect on the middle east and afghanistan so fellas to get giant time started have you ever heard of the nephilim no. No, I, I haven't. Uh, my only shot was going to be Noah, and, you know, I guess Jake is also a bad Jew, so you wouldn't know either. I have, like, a very slight idea, which is that they're a race of ancient giant people, but that's really all I know, <laughs> I swear. You can't, you couldn't, you couldn't get me to say more about them if you tried. Yeah, you're just using context clues, which, hey, I applaud you for, but <laughs> the Nephilim, let's, let's get into them. They are mythical giants, indeed, referenced three times in the Hebrew Bible. And uh, here's a passage referencing these big fellas. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come of the Nephilim. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. Not a ton of descriptions about the Nephilim here, and this passage is a little bit redundant. So what are they saying? They're like, that we saw these giants, and we were small, so they saw us for sure. No, I think that it just is basically roundabout saying we were like grasshoppers to them. Mm. Which I gotta say, common experience for Jewish youth. Common yes. experience. <laughs> Always. We were bugs. Yeah. They treated yeah. us as bugs. Oh, look at him. He's so much bigger than I am. Yeah, constantly just <laughs> hopping away from confrontations, hiding in tall yeah. grass, stepped on by, you know, unsuspecting uh, pedestrians. I, I can relate. Fed to lizards. <laughs> Wondering if lizards. you were made out of mud by a goy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> The origin of the Nephilim as referenced in the Hebrew Bible is disputed, with some believing that they're the offspring of fallen angels and human beings having sex with each other. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know why I said that so fucking bizarrely. <laughs> While others claim they were simply the descendants of some dudes called Seth and Cain, the Hebrew word Nephilim directly translates to the fallen ones. So it's not really like on its face a giant reference. And there is actually some argument as to whether the word Nephilim can accurately be translated as giant. Well, it's interesting you say that because we were, before we started recording, we saw some Transformers parallels in this story. And mm-hmm. the, we all remember the fallen was Transformers too. The Rise of the Fallen, what was it? Something like that. This is definitely a, a Transformers subheading uh, in, in one of the movies. But did Optimus Prime mate with a woman and make like a Volvo hatchback? It, it could be dubbed as Rise of, of the Nephilim in, in other parts <laughs> of the world, is what I'm saying. <laughs> That's going to be Transformers 8, which actually comes out uh, this holiday season. I have the screener, and it's, you know what? It's not bad. Not bad. A lot of words, a lot of clicks, but also a lot of Nephilim, so. Yes, you get, you, you get your fill of the Nephilim. Don't worry about that. It feels like like Nephilim would be like the like the Transformers of the Transformers franchise created by, like, I don't know, Kevin Sorbo, you know? <laughs> well, he, he's, got, he's probably been in a movie with Nephilim in it, given the biblical bent of his career. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah Nephilim. Rise of the Antichrist 3. Also, like, Nephilim is, like, just such a good example of, like, the very classic genre of, like, just stuff that people read in the Bible and decide to take literally. Like, they're willing Mm -hmm. to accept that so many other things are clearly figurative or illusions, but, like, this, and then, what is it, when Ezekiel sees, like, the great whirring machine or whatever in the sky, and they're Mm -hmm. like, yeah, that's that's, uh, Satan or the angels or whatever, but, no, people, like, it's, I, I, I appreciate that we have biblical Bigfoot. Yeah, it's like the girl just can't get enough of it. She's straight a Nephilim. <laughs> oh, oh boy. Wow. Oh boy. Even Travis, you got Travis to shake his head on that one. Good, good. <laughs> So fast forward thousands of years and we've got conspiracy theorists claiming that the Nephilim are still around and that shadowy governmental forces are trying to cover their existence up and or harness their immense power for who knows what purpose, probably something really bad. One of the most obsessed Nephilimophiles is Steve Quayle, uh, a man whose website is a wild mix of alien disclosure, biblical baking, QAnon, and every type of grift known to man. We're talking gold, silver, Colloidal silver, off-the-grid power kits, weird phone accessories meant to shield you from who knows what, and even a multi-level marketing scheme called Our Freedom Begins Now, recruiting people to sell beef. (laughs) (laughs) That fucking rocks, by the way. I mean, I guess it would be even more salacious if it were bacon or like uh, shrimp. I mean, at least with an MLM beef, you know, like if you're just stuck with a bunch of beef on your hands, you know, could live on that for a while. Yeah. More than you could say for Mary Kay or Tupperware. Especially if it's Nephilim beef. That's extra large portions. (laughs) (laughs) You could feed. We're trying to raise Nephilim in the labs again to feed, you know, countries. Yeah, it's not essential oils. You know, if you get scammed out of a lot uh, into buying a bunch of beef, then, you know, at least, you know, you can have hamburgers for a while. Yeah, you have like a big chili cookout, you feed your whole small town. That's kind of cool, actually. I'm with it. This guy, Mr. Quail, um, who you've included a picture of, he yes. looks like the sort of whistleblower that's kept in like a dimly lit sort of underground government cell that the, you know, the protagonists in the Transformer movies have to visit like, you know, end of act two to get, you know, the real story on the Nephilim Transformers. He looks like a guy trying not to pass out at a wedding. <laughs> you mean me? 
Yeah, just like it, he's, it's like the ceremony, not even the party, and he's already so drunk that he's struggling <laughs> yeah. to keep his eyes open. I don't know. I think he's like Dr. Baruby's banker brother, Haim. <laughs> yeah, except he's got kind of like a Ninja Turtle smile going on, which is, you know, one half of your mouth closed and then the other <laughs> half kind of like gritting your teeth. Anyways, if you're interested in that beef thing, just go to stevequail.com and then uh, I guess contact the people who are using a Hotmail address. So you can trust them, no problem. Is he related to Dan Quail? At all. That's what I was wondering. We're going to make that claim right now. Okay. Let's just go for it. Yeah, he is. He's <laughs> Dan Quayle's brother. <laughs> Steve has been doing this stuff since the 90s, and he's a repeat guest on such classic shows as The Jim Baker Show and uh, Coast to Coast AM, which, you know, obviously is an amazing show, uh, except, you know, Art Bell died, and then he passed it on to George Norrie, who's like, I'd say not as good. So he's more of the Nori generation, Steve. He's like the Dick York to Dick Sargent or the other way yeah. around on Bewitched. I don't know which one it is. I, I've never watched Bewitched, but I'll have to trust you on this one. Yeah, that landed like a fucking lead. <laughs> I watched a lot of Bewitched as a kid. I'm, I'm always surprised when I make this exact same joke. And when no you one make responds. this reference to like a 50 year old TV show. Yeah. That, you know, Try like, 70. Bewitched for me was like how I knew that Nick at Night was over. You know, yeah. the, 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 you know, Snick, the big orange couch, you know, a couple sketch shows, very funny stuff at the time. And then the Bewitched, uh, you, you know, they would do they would start doing the classic TV shows, you know, afterwards. And once once I saw that, you know, that intro theme song, I was like, well, it's time. It's time to sh change the channel or get sent to bed. I felt very deceived by by Bewitched and uh, the Brady Bunch. I felt like I was tricked into watching a lot of hours of those shows. <laughs> That I didn't particularly care for. I was not tricked. I was quite happy. There was a Nephilim episode of Bewitched, by the way. So I'm coming here more prepared than any of you by, watching, by having watched it. Was there really like a fallen no, angel? No, no, no. I, I don't. No, I don't think so. There could have been though. It's kind of in everything. It's what they call like. There's a whole plot line in Diablo. Uh, based on the Nephilim. But I think it's more of the interpretation of the Fallen One than the, the Giants thing. Well, yeah, and uh, X-Files Season 1 has a Fallen Angel episode. I mean, that's like what they call like some invisible alien thing that electrocutes people. So is, is Nephilim, not to get too uh, in the weeds, but... Well, is, like Nephal is Hebrew for like falling down. Right, so, so biblically, is Nephilim seriously just supposed to mean Giants or does it have... Ones who fought, ones who have fallen. So it doesn't just mean this particular myth of a giant cast or whatever no they're like it's the like this passage describes them as the nephilim don't exist right like it's just what? like this passage in the bible that describes some really tall guys who are addressed as the ones who are, who are fallen Okay. And we know that they're really tall because of that whole thing about grasshoppers and, mm -hmm. and whatnot. Like, there's they're not really that important to the whole biblical canon thing. Well, are they? I mean, you know, perhaps. I remain to be, I, I could be convinced. You know, I'm, I'm just Jewish. Interestingly, there are references to giants that don't use the word Nephilim, that just straight up reference giants in yeah. like the book, book of Enoch, as we'll, as we'll see. But yeah, like yep. people debate whether Nephilim can even be translated as giants, but the majority of biblical translators translated it as, as giants. And uh, other ones translated as the fallen ones, and other ones translated as the people who brought on the fall of the protagonist in whatever passage. 
So it's a fucking mess, and we're trying to decode all that shit. Wasn't there a Nephilim movie that came out in like the 90s about like a 50-foot woman? I don't think that's the same thing. Who played thing. it? Who played it? That's not the same. But I like that. Yeah, the Amazon, the, the very tall woman, the one you want to step on your little nuts. Oh, yes. It was Daryl Han- Hannah. She played the Nephilim. And I don't know about who that. who played the Transformers? <laughs> Shut the fuck up. <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk off we'll talk off air jake <laughs> yeah but keep keep looking stuff up on your phone and bring it to us jake like old movies and and make sure to type in nephilim so you can never find it because you know that there's no reference to that that's just like that's sure. just a a fetish film for the 50s before they could show skin about a, a tall woman who you want to step on your buildings <laughs> if you if you know what i'm saying so Quail, back to this beautiful man, he he runs a blog called Q Alerts, which I guess stands for Quail, but is also obviously to like lure in, you know, Q people. He lucked out with that one. Yes. Big time. It's just like a blog, basically, where he posts in all caps with lots of typos. And I found a recent post from July 12th, which uh, I'd love you to read, Jake. It is uh, genuinely amazing. From SQ Alert to all my Q Files members, big t- <laughs> big time attack on my producer's ability. <laughs> <laughs> the <laughs> Take it again. Take it again. Okay, all right. From SQ Alert to all my Q Files members, big time attack on my producer's ability to upload the Q Files for last 24 hours. Also, also her computer burned out during the process. <laughs> okay, that's the title and the text is... <laughs> It says, uh, Rhonda, it's in all caps. And Help says, me, Rhonda. Rhonda. Rhonda has been trying to upload my yesterday's QCast podcast for the last 24 hours. It was 90 minutes, and the content must have made the entities mad. Her laptop went down, fried, and her efforts at rendering an upload were unsuccessful. Prior to her computer burnout, I am looking at workarounds and getting her back up ASAP. I will advise. I will get a transcript done as quickly as possible, but even that will need to be uploaded. Interesting timing, as the word I was sharing was, we're in the eye of the hurricane, and we are coming out of the eye into the full fury of the storm, as the hatred of all good is kicking into high gear, and will be relentless now. Note the MSM full-on attacks against, quote, the sound of freedom, and not caring for the sexually trafficked kids, and attacking the rescuers. Woe unto them who call evil good. July 12th, 2023. That's fresh. I really envy these people because, like, when like we put out an episode late, it's like, oh, yeah, sorry, I had a headache, and I guess I didn't research the stuff. But this guy's like, we're under attack. They're frying my producer's computer. You know, it's it's, it's a lot more dramatic. Also, he just went on to say what the post was. And, like, <laughs> so how are you being shut down if you just then said it in a shorter and more like succinct way? I, I guess, but that wasn't taken down. So why did she get fried? We should all have Rhonda's to blame our. Are, are like late podcasts on but this this really is my favorite kind of like q influencer post you know boomer battles with the internet i mean it really it really strikes a special chord in my heart yeah do you remember the um i don't know if this was afghanistan related but there was a like cbs mainstream network reporter who said that she thought the obama administration was hacking into her computer because she started to see a document she was working on like you know getting deleted in real time like on google Docs or on Microsoft Word and she thought like it was the government like literally manually pressing delete from far away uh, and and stopping her from filing her report and then it turned out like she had a sticky delete key or something and it was... (laughs) 
<laughs> it was literally that her computer was sticky, and then I think she had to do a big apology. And I'm sure she now is a reporter for Newsmax or um yeah or something like that. It might have been Lara Logan. I don't want to I don't want to say it was, but it might have been. I know the best one that you used to get was the people who were like hacked and putting stuff in searches. Wait, you mean like Cookie Roberts? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. She was like Krispy Kreme. Where is it? And she was tweeting like search terms. That oh, she was yes. trying to find. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I was I was struggling to remember that, and you immediately pulled it. I have it filed up up here. <laughs> I also like when people complain about their autocomplete. It's like, oh, it's just autocompleted. <laughs> like oh, my yeah. text or Benny Johnson. Like, why am I getting all these gay ads? <laughs> Let's just say Benny Johnson was complaining about gay ads and was informed that those were uh, auto targeted. Let's just that, that that them's the facts, and uh, yeah. he didn't appear aware of them when he tweeted it. Speaking of Lara Logan, it was amazing to like hear her come up in your podcast because we've studied her as a total fucking QAnon loon promoting mm-hmm. like adrenochrome stuff now. Mm-hmm. So she she's fallen from high but i mean back in the what was it C- was it cbs that she was on yes yeah, six uh 60 minutes 60 you know, minutes the most prestigious tv news magazine show if michael mann movies are to be believed yep and and she she was um she was a war correspondent you know or whatever you want to call it and uh she took particular delight in attacking michael hastings the late michael hastings which is when we bring her up because he you know broke a big story about not only the nasty words that general stanley mccrystal was using about the obama administration which was the more tabloid aspect, but he was really talking about how Obama didn't seem to really give a shit about winning the war. Value judgments aside about that, uh, she just went into full kind of a a, a defensive mode that uh, was very loyal to the military, and everyone thought, hmm, she's really going above and beyond here. She really attacked Hastings' character. And then a couple years later, She's on the, uh, I think she's too, she's too extreme even for like, for OAN and stuff, right? Hasn't she been in trouble for all kinds of just straight up anti-Semitism and stuff, I think, or stuff like that? Yeah. Last I checked, she has like her own show, which is just her in a kind of nice looking living room. That's good. We should probably be careful about what we say because I, I think she's very litigious from what I remember. So what I meant to say was she's doing a great job and always has. Well, she's probably doing a better job now than she was covering up for the Afghanistan war, some total of, you yeah. know. Yeah, that's quantities. a good point that like playing around in like the QAnon padded room of social media is probably better than like literally selling a war. Yeah, yeah. they're waiting for David Brooks. We would love to have him. Uh, so Quayle loves to talk about giants and claims to be on a never-ending quest to uncover the Nephilim. He's written a ton of books, including... Terminated. The End of Man is Here. Xenogenesis. Changing Men into Monsters. Empire Beneath the Ice. How the Nazis won World War II. Angel Wars. Past, Present, and Future. I wanted Angel Wars. It was a good read, though. My favorite book cover of his is the one for Tears, An Ocean of Emotion. And uh, yeah, I, just, I wanted to That's include That's a Temptations this. lyric. <laughs> Talk about litigious. Can, can someone try to describe this one? Yeah, this looks like um, this looks like two Howard the Duck eyes, like peering through a cloud above a stormy sea. 
and two teardrops from the corners of each eye. The wrong ends of the eyes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wrong ends of the eyes. They're very close together. Yeah, the cl- the eyes are too close together. It doesn't look right. It's pretty yeah. These looking. look like Furby eyes. Oh, maybe it is Furby. <laughs> or like somebody who's like looking from behind a painting, you know, in at like the Truman <laughs> yeah, Show Scooby-Doo. or whatever. Yeah, no, yeah. like Scooby Doo when like when like the the eyes of the painting move yes. away and then yeah, the, and yeah, then yeah. The, the goblin is behind it and they're crying in this case. Yeah, I actually looked into this one and it is about how behind tears and crying hides like a whole like secret world to like decode <laughs> basically. So he just decodes mm-hmm. crying and tears for like a whole book. This guy has probably got a fucking sick psychiatrist who pl- who gets him the coolest drugs. Yeah, it's Jesus. <laughs> he also uses the font that you'll see oftentimes on like self-appointed social media self-help millennials. Mm. <laughs> like in it, like like the font on his books, or or yeah, um... the font on his books. It's like almost cursive, but not quite. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And to me, it looks like the auto signature from like DocuSign. Yeah. Yes, that too. That'd be funny if he was writing all of it. Like he didn't know how to use a word processor of modern era, so he has to use DocuSign uh, every time <laughs> he writes a word, and then just print each word individually yeah. in his PDFs. He doesn't understand Photoshop, so he just literally he literally just imports everything into DocuSign <laughs> to get any text over the image that he wants. <laughs> that would be me, actually, like in another in like an alternate universe. I I'm I'm kind of dumb in that way. It's more deliberate, you know, writing that you know it gives him more time to think because he's busy, you know, with each word. <laughs> everything there's no wasted words. Quail particularly loves a passage from the Book of Enoch referencing giants. And it came to pass when the children of men had multiplied, that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. And the angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them, and said to one another, Come, let us choose us wives from among the children of men, and beget us children. And they became pregnant and brought forth giants. And when men could no longer sustain them, the giants turned against them and devoured mankind. And they began to sin against birds and beasts and reptiles and fish and to devour one another's flesh and drink the blood. Then the earth laid accusation against the lawless ones. And like, actually, oftentimes it's right before your ark comes into the story, Noah, that uh, the giants get mentioned, so... My yes, they're actually referenced yeah. in the uh, like that 2010s film Noah, starring Russell Crowe. There's a whole there's a whole yeah. thing about the giants in in that movie. Actually, I wonder if that movie's based on anything. Um, God, talk about child trafficking, though. I mean, it sounds like these angels are just like up to no oh, yeah. good. Oh yeah, no, like the fallen angels immediately got to fucking. <laughs> they found the the ladies good on earth. So in 2008, Steve Quayle basically started the legend of the Giant of Kandahar during an appearance on Coast to Coast AM with George Norrie. You're very spiritual, extremely spiritual, Stephen. So are, are you saying that these giants who are on the planet, these giants who could come through portals, they are the ones that Genesis refers to? Yes. <laughs> what do you want him to say? Yeah. Yeah, not a great interviewer and not a great interviewee. It's simple. <laughs> I liked the interviewer. I thought he laid everything out really, really yeah. carefully there. Yeah, it, yeah, I felt like he was interviewing the Doom guy, you know? Like, so you're yeah, saying yeah, yeah. that these demons, <laughs> they came through the portal at Mars, and the doctor, he just laughed. <laughs> yeah. You're telling me they call him the Doom Slayer? Hmm. <laughs> 
Interesting. It's like every movie these days, every 10 minutes, where they have yeah. like a guy stand in for the dumb guy in the audience and just explain what has happened in the last 10 minutes. Yep. In the interview, Nori and Quayle emphasize how scary and horny these giant Nephilim really are. Were not the Nephilim the reason why God wanted that flood, the flood yeah. of Noah, to That's wipe them out? He wiped them out, but people don't understand there was an incursion, a sexual incursion, both before the flood and after the flood. That's why Genesis says, in those days and after those days. And some of the skeptics say, oh, these were the sons of Seth versus the sons of Cain. Uh-uh, I got news for you. You can take anybody of uh, normal Earth origin, and uh, they might have something that looks, you know, a little different than the father or the mother, but they're not going to produce. Normally, six-foot people don't produce 12 feet, uh, 12 feet tall giants. And remember, the body mass is proportionate. These aren't just tall, like some of the images of the tallest people recorded in history uh, in this, you know, in, in the, the, let's say the last 200 years. But these guys have huge, I'm talking huge biceps. I, I was talking to Mark. Oh, they're like human dinosaurs. Well stated. There must be a name. There must be another name that we could think of than human dinosaurs. I hope if only there was something that, that we could think of, a word. Also, I'm thinking of like dinosaurs not known for their biceps. I'm gonna tell you that right now. He's just trying to find a word for something big and extinct. He's just a Some kind of really large human lobster <laughs> and yeah some some skeptics even say that the flood was actually just massive nuts from from each of these fallen angels <laughs> i like how in the beginning he's like but you see here's what a lot of people don't get yeah exactly see what, he's like what a lot of people don't understand is yeah they don't understand like like there's a lot of people who accept the giants and everything but they don't get that they're sexually aroused <laughs> Like most yeah. people, they accept the giant story, but they don't accept my my theory of the, of the sexual element. It's like the the trees, like the Ents in Lord of the Rings, except you know, sexual style. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Human trees, the tall ones. <laughs> <laughs> and every everybody knows that uh, you know the size of your biceps uh, totally correlates to sexual prowess, uh, horniness, that stuff in general. I mean, it yeah. kind of sounds like what he wanted to say was something yeah. a little bit different, but maybe thought better of it. Quayle and Nori soon invite a guy they call the pilot on to speak to them on the show. And uh, this guy claims to have seen the corpse of the giant as it was being transported out of Afghanistan. This would uh, this story would later also yield this book, Long Walkers, Return of the Nephilim. And you can yeah. see here a little illustration of uh, troops standing around a giant. It looks like Blanca from Street Fighter. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's, it's an interesting illustration. I wonder who drew this. Um, they're not very wowed by it, I have to say, the, the troops. They're sort of clinically looking at it. One guy's kind of got his hand on his chin going, hmm. They look like the troops, though, where they're kind of drawn. Like, um, I mean, well, they, they all have, like, Hank Hill ass. And also, uh, yeah. they, like, <laughs> they look like, you know, those, like, really, like, psychotically fawning portraits of Trump or whatever, where he's, like, having sex with a construction worker or something <laughs> yes. and, like, holding a baby and blah, 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 blah. Like, they, <laughs> they look like that. <laughs> It's a good drawing. Yeah, it is. Although I really do think, I mean, I think that's 
I think this is from Street Fighter because you have Guile in the center. If you zoom in with the guy with the sunglasses, you can see him. That's the guy Guile. Just Street Fighter template. It looks like a stage. It really does look like a stage. Yeah, it does. It's a stage. Look at this. You got the people yeah. moving in the background. You've got the um, mm -hmm. you've got the cargo military jet. I mean, you've got the boxes. The boxes piled up. You could use an environmental, you know, like element to hit someone at some point. You could take one of these boxes or uh, you know maybe maybe like throw them throw them into. Yeah. Yeah. the plane. Yeah. Well, and yeah. they did say that these Nephilim are charged with electricity, right? I mean, that's one of their powers. Is it? Wow. Maybe they're they're related to, to Raiden. So that's a different, that's Mortal Kombat, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But probably, that's, yeah. that makes sense. Idiot. But could be. Blanca and Raiden are, yeah, cut from the same cloth. <laughs> two, two really good guys, actually. Some people think they're pretty bad, but Blanca and Raiden are very good guys. We had a fantastic conversation with Raiden recently, and we're, we're doing a lot of great stuff. <laughs> a lot of great stuff with Raiden. He's coming out, he's teleporting, he's going down into the, he's going down into the ground, he's coming back, and he's shooting lightning out of his hands. But they redid the universe. They made, the fire god made a whole new universe, and we're not so <laughs> sure how good it's gonna be Let, we, we're not so sure we gotta try it out though a lot a, a lot of people are asking why this oriental fellow he speaks with a french accent we don't know why he, he looks french he speaks french but his eyes there's no pupils guile he got the upside down kick and now he can kick upside down uh probably because he took the vaccine and now he's kicking upside down and some people don't know if he could kick right side up but a lot of people are saying he's kicking upside down into blanca Okay, so this is the coast-to-coast right. -coast introduction of the pilot by Nori and Quail. He's a pilot. He goes into, uh, flies in and out of the, the war zone into Afghanistan, etc., and he basically is asked to fly unusual cargo. The gentlemen that come on to uh, brief he and his co-pilot, and I think maybe there may have been one other individual, he can clear that up, but they take away their cameras. They don't want them to have any cameras or anything. I don't know if this is military intelligence or whatever, but this is the guy that's flying the airplane that I'm showing as a cover to the long walkers, and since his name is not in the letter, I'm reproducing that letter. And uh, I think it's fascinating, George, that he would uh, want to come on and tell his story. Because, again, we're not talking about something that's ancient bones. We're not talking about something that's, quote, unquote, just legend. We're talking about a real evil entity. And he'll relate to you the story of what the Special Forces guys told him of what they found uh, in the way of the remains of the normal group that was going into the mountains of Afghanistan to uh, find the Taliban. In essence, uh, when I say these are not usually... Uh, nice guys out of fairy tales that they're cannibals i'll let him tell the story and again okay. we're just going to refer to him as the pilot just the pilot we'll go to him now hello there so a lot of a lot of ado and uh he brings on this pilot guy and unfortunately the pilot is a really bad storyteller and seems to be quite reticent to claim anything as fact perhaps because he now realizes he's on national radio he explains that he saw a 12-foot, 1,100-pound, extremely stinky corpse in the fetal position, partially covered by a tarp and tied to a transport pallet. By his account, the corpse was pallid white, had red hair, and six fingers on each hand. Which you would expect, though. The Nephilim would have to have mad finger game if they're mm -hmm. coming down to, like, mm -hmm. you know, woo the, the ladies. They have to have an advantage mm -hmm. other than the height. The pilot then gets into the people who killed the giant and brought it back to the base, a spec ops team he calls the babysitters. The babysitters that, that's what I called them at the time, the babysitters who had come in and out of the mountains, uh, not sure if they were shooters. Uh, well, they would claim to be shooters, and most of those guys do. Yeah. Uh, but they basically said that uh, when this, they got this thing, it had actually taken out the first crew that had found him, and uh, they went in afterwards 
And, of course, uh, when they came up on this thing, supposedly, of course, secondhand, uh, thing ran like the wind, uh, reported us that uh, threw stones at the guys uh, at a pretty good distance, so they said. And, uh, of course, our weapons did take it out because I was looking at this dead thing. So I see what you mean about the storytelling. Yeah. I'm not sure I understood any of that. He's not great at getting to the point, and he's constantly being like, well, so they claimed, and that's what these army guys always claim. Like, yeah. he kind of tries to tell George Norian Quayle that army guys are constantly lying about killing giants. <laughs> like, that's just, like, one of those things. The Spec Ops boys come back, and they're like, yo, we killed a giant out there. The giant throwing rocks, that does track. I mean, you know, sure. I I feel like, you know, most giants uh, portrayed in popular culture and, and fiction, we know them as mm. rock throwers. So I don't know. I think that does add a little bit of credibility to his story. Well, it doesn't really make sense because the rocks never come back. And in all the like subsequent depictions of this, it's a spear that he has. So if he has a spear, why would he be throwing the rocks? Well, I mean, I don't know, man. Like like rocks yeah. and spears have different situations, different tactics. <laughs> yeah, I think it's an appropriate interpretation, actually. I mean, yeah. have you ever ever served have, have you actually ever served julian no in no. the giant task force the uh, nephahim squad nephahim <laughs> nephahim nephahim <laughs> what are they called the the, nep- the nephilim nephilim whatever <laughs> uh, it is the man who attempts to own that is now owned so Quail gets quickly impatient with the pilot because he's not performing as needed, and he attempts to jump in to make the story spicier. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you remember, pilot, when we talked, you said that <laughs> basically when the second team, the special forces guys, went in to kill this thing, there were basically what rib cages and skulls. I mean, it, it looked like uh, what the killing fields. I, I would call it the standard stories that come in out of these guys. Uh, again, like I said, it was secondhand, uh, but the way they painted it out, yes, this guy was eating probably more than our guys with the uh with the killing fields that he oh, they more or less described he just sucks like it's like fuck man he's like come on buddy when we were having beers in my garage you were telling me about the gore <laughs> yeah. and the skulls and the spines i don't you want to say any of that on the air you were you were right about it it's, he just doesn't want to say it on radio yes yeah he's like dude i usually just show off over a budweiser but this <laughs> this is gonna get me into trouble it's like he got dragged into the cafeteria the next day when you're a kid and you like have a big story and then everyone's kind of actually listening to you and you get really shy and you're like <laughs> yes well i didn't actually i didn't actually meet you know my chemical romance i just saw them uh <laughs> yeah you know they were near they were near me i didn't meet them it's it's live on air too so he can't like they can't be like okay wait pause pause like go chug like a quart of whiskey and come back yeah <laughs> and give it to give this to us again unlike this interview that we're doing now where we've all we've all <laughs> taken care of that yeah everyone's on a good quart quarter and a half so Quail's insecurities about the interview and his pilot that he brought on the show continue to grow, and he finds himself attempting to justify himself to George Nori, even explaining that he almost had someone even better than the pilot on the show with him. <laughs> At one point, George, I was almost to the point of having an active duty four star come on your show with me. Yes. Until a couple of people on a stupid blog ruined it, okay? And he said, Steve, he said, I know what you want to do, and then you'll enjoy this pilot. He said, I know what you want to do. I know how badly you want people to understand the peril. But he said, I have to tell you the same thing Jesus said. And he said, Jesus said, if I've told you earthly things, you believe me not, how can I tell you heavenly things? And is he, George, even 
even to get your mind around this, it's one thing to deal with a dead one on a pallet. It's another thing to even embrace 300 million of these things or more coming through Stargate and people <laughs> actively having rituals in which they sacrifice live children to these things in uh, rituals to bring forth the army of the end times to destroy humanity. Which Old Testament book has the Stargate again? <laughs> 300 yeah. million giants coming through a Stargate to like eat children. Yeah, is that a potential Ezekiel's wheel interpretation? I'm a little rusty, but I remember it was a mediocre show in the late 90s. Oh, that was uh, that was the Episcopalians. They added that one. Okay. I thought I thought it was Romans for a second, but yeah. Because for a second, I'm like, well, what's the peril? They killed the giant, but he's saying that there's 300 million, I believe he said. Yeah. Yeah, 300 yeah. million are going to come through Stargates. They're going to be, you're going to have to sacrifice your children to them, and they're going to usher in the end days. Okay. Look, and that's yeah, that's if you don't deal with the problem now, okay? Because if you, look, if you don't accept my quote, somebody's just going to come back here next week when the thing calls apart and going to charge you twice as much. <laughs> <laughs> When was this recorded? Was Stargate even in the public consciousness? Yeah, I think two thousand eight. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, okay. So Stargate, not only movie, but also but also a show. Stargate SG one. Yeah. yeah, that's okay. right. All right. Not a not a bad TV show. Not a bad TV show. Because like in the movie Stargate, like they were just really worried. You know, if anybody was going to come through the Stargate, it was just going to be like a bunch of like hungry people who were like enslaved by this like alien race. So you know, they're really not that threatening. So those were literally like the only usable or interesting passages from this first appearance. But this still somehow (laughs) spawned the story of the giant of Kandahar. Mm. It was so crappy, but it would be carried forward with more gusto by another Nephilim enthusiast, a crank who goes by L.A. Marzulli. He interviewed several anonymized people who claimed to be ex-military, fleshing out details of the story on a program called Politics, Prophecy, and the Supernatural. I just, I think you're mispronouncing, it's La Marzulli. He's a magician, like an old-style vaudeville magician. With <laughs> he that does name. look that way. If you scroll he down, does. you'll see him. <laughs> he straight up does look like a fucking old-school magician. He's the great Marzulli, and if you listen to him, he'll blow your mind with tales from... The Stargate. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would please join me across the street at the <laughs> Pantages, La Marzuli. <laughs> Unfortunately, Marzuli's interviews are also fucked up because he pitched the subject's voices down so low and used such intense music that it's almost impossible to understand what is being claimed in them. <laughs> So instead, I've got a more modern retelling for you from a YouTuber who is, I think, cribbing from all this stuff that came before him. But before we get into that, it's worth hearing how Marzulli tried to connect the American incursions into Afghanistan with the idea that they were preparing to fight giants. There's another point to the story that I find really interesting, and this has to do with the second witness. While this man was in training, they were taught how to fight in a cave. Part of their training was cave fighting. They were informed that the Afghan soldiers hold up in caves and that once they were deployed, they might find themselves fighting in caves. You may remember the events of 9-11. We were given graphic illustrations of Osama bin Laden's cave complex. It was on the cover of Time magazine. What was interesting about this part of the story was this particular soldier who came on the record informed us that during the training, the men were told to aim high. In other words, soldiers are taught to aim for the chest and then shoot for the head with the second shot. In other words, soldiers are taught to aim for the chest with the first two shots and then a kill shot to the head, which would be standard military procedure in a firefight. There was something else. Why would the training change? 
the basic military precept by instructing the men to aim high. We found that incredibly interesting. The second soldier told us that he didn't understand this at the time, but later, once deployed to the Kandahar province in Afghanistan and hearing about the giant, he put two and two together and figured out that the training was because the military may have believed there was more than one of these guys running around. Running around. Running around. <laughs> I, like, I like how you have to be trained when a combatant is taller to shoot higher. Also, he, sa- he sounds <laughs> yeah. like Kevin Costner in JFK. Up, back, and to the left. Up, and in the head. Up, and in the head. Yeah, he said it like three times. I don't know if he did a retake there in, in his own video or forgot to cut it out, but he, he really wanted you to know that part. Yeah, it's incredible. And like, he is referencing, remember that amazing diagram of uh, the supposed cave that Bin Laden sure. was going to be found in? It was fucking awesome. It was like a child's drawing of like a dream yes. house where there's like several rooms where it's like, this room is the arcade room. This room is the pizza room. <laughs> like one of um, Stephen Beasley's uh, incredible cross sections. It reminded me of a toy, a uh, Star Wars toy, where there was a Death Star, and then you opened up the Death Star, and it was like different levels of the rest of the movie was inside, yes. and you could see like each layer, like a cake. You know, there was like Mos Eisley, and then there was, mm-hmm. you know, blah, blah, blah. That's what Osama had. He had a Death Star with different Star Wars maps inside. I'd have to go back and look at that at that uh, drawing, because maybe one of the rooms was extra tall, so it That's... makes you think. But like, okay, if we're taking this guy's word at face value, which we, okay. we don't, and we, we should. shouldn't, but, no, we you know, why wouldn't they just just say okay you guys you're given top secret clearance they're like there's gonna be giants here's how you kill them they wouldn't just say like you're gonna be fighting regular guys but maybe aim up (laughs) (laughs) why why should you look i'm just saying i'm just saying don't be surprised if you have to aim well why i mean is it are they they using some new well that look i can't i can't give the whole thing away but just i'm just saying you might want to aim a little high well you're my commanding officer well (laughs) and this doesn't really make that much sense because if you're fighting the Taliban and then you encounter a giant, you're going to get murked by the Taliban by shooting over their heads until you meet a giant. So it's really not great for just general combat. What's the story of like how they get to the, because I'm curious how like they end up in like the Taliban stronghold of Kandahar is like where they locate this (laughs) taking place. Yeah. So do you have any like information about why maybe it doesn't make sense for them to even be there? Well, first of all, I'm curious, like, what is the relationship, supposed relationship between the Nephilim and the enemies of the U.S. forces in Afghanistan? Do the, is it that the, that the Taliban, are they I fighting think, them I as well? That the, the, the giant represents the, um, the, 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 Is it like 300 where, like, you know, the shots kinda. of the Persians and then there's a big orc that, you know, yeah. they just have? I think it's more like a PvPVE situation where <laughs> okay. you have... Where you have your standard enemy, right? The, you, you know, the Taliban. But then there are like other sort of uh, enemies on the map that don't really fight for a particular oh, side. Oh, yeah. Like, in, this is what this is like a League of Legends bullshit. Sure, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I just still think it's amazing that they were like, they were like, we're going to give you um, bad tactics to fight uh, most likely the most common enemy uh, that you'll face, but yeah. we're going to give you really good strategy to fight like this enemy that may or may not appear. God, that's so funny that the smoking gun is that they told them to aim higher when they're in a cave. That's so funny (laughs) that that's like the proof. 
I love that. I like cave fighting too. The idea that that's some sort of different form of fighting. Cave fighting. It was like, oh man, it's kind of dark in here. What are we gonna do? <laughs> wish we had some kind of goggles, uh, you know, that the the army could give us. See. Yeah. I wish we had some other uh, horrible campaign that we had run in another country uh, that <laughs> dealt with uh, fighting in dark tunnels where we were at a severe disadvantage. If only, if only we had listened to what those guys had told us. Well, that wouldn't have worked because there were, unless I'm reading this wrong, there was there's no claim here that any other war we fought had had nephilim <laughs> true <laughs> unless some of the vietnam soldiers were getting like really racist which well yeah you know. also what were the nephilim doing in the 1980s when the soviets were there were they like and whose side were they on well stargate didn't come out until the late 90s Fuck, yeah right. so yeah. wait what about kurt russell stargate I think that was 95. Yeah, so they wouldn't... So the movie spawned those Stargates, and yeah. so it was post-USSR involvement. Because once once something happens in a movie, it gets instantiated in the real world, like, thereafter. <laughs> yes. Well, and then the TV show comes out, so then you're even more in, in the thick of it. That's the 300 yes. million. Yeah, 300 million, and now they're horny. <laughs> <laughs> they want to make sexual incursions. <laughs> 1994, excuse me, I was wrong. So what is the story of the giant of Kandahar? And for that, we're going to be checking out a YouTube show hosted by a guy in a I Heart Cops t-shirt and a laptop with a Black Rifle Coffee Company sticker. Oh, fuck he, yes. He, here he is addressing his ex-Green Beret friend, Matt. Matt, I would say that if you were walking into the mouth of a cave with a missing unit and you see <laughs> shards of clothes, some chunks of flesh, and a battery, what are you saying to your guys? I'm saying something went wrong and we'd be prepped and get ready for a fight. Yeah, yeah, you guys are, you I guys are like along the lines of like Operation Red Wing. Some shit went down, and we need to we need to get close, and we need to pay attention to what's happening. Right. So know. you're like in your brain, you're like conditioned yellow, like you're ready, it's like time it's to time to go. Right. Yep. So these guys move on to this cave opening, and they get towards the mouth of the cave, and they're following the chunks of their uh, of this missing unit, and then all of a sudden, this giant of a man that they say stood 13 feet tall, approximately 1,100 pounds, a figure, a beast with six fingers and six toes, red hair, uh, lunges from the cave with a spear. And of course, it's a ginger. Right, right. <laughs> which we're going to get to. We're going to get to because the giants that were found in North America and the giants that were found in Ireland and Scotland all have red hair. So that's interesting. Interesting. So they, in, the, the first guy, Dan, gets impaled by this spear and he dies. A fight ensues. They shoot this thing in the face. They all mag dump. Oh, no. <laughs> Uh, there's a lot to discuss just from the visuals. Um, yeah. okay. So there's one guy on the, on the far left side of the screen. He's, you know, kind of standard YouTube looking guy. The guy in the middle is the host. He's the one with the black rifle coffee club and, uh, a little gavel and other things that I'm sure he thinks make him, you know, impossible to forget when you see his videos. And then <laughs> the, on the furthest of the right, there's a guy <laughs> Who uh, looks a bit like Jeremy Strong and has a flag in the background and then two dangling steampunk light bulbs just <laughs> next to his head. What is going on with those? Like, it's not a lamp. It's not 
one light it's not one dangling bulb it's two dangling but like he's having two yeah. ideas occur to him while he's in the video <laughs> they represent both of his brain cells it's so bizarre and i love so, okay, the last thing i'll say is that i loved in the clip they're laughing about the ginger joke and then the guy in the middle is like well but see the thing is is that actually most giants are uh when they are found they tend to be ginger and then the two other guys like they, they like get it together as if they've like the teacher told them don't laugh and they're like oh, oh that's oh it's, it's interesting oh, yeah, yeah no, oh. it's actually fascinating Worth considering. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You'll notice that there's a piggy bank in both the left and middle guy's background. So they're all about fiscal responsibility, I'm uh, guessing. Yep, well, yep, and yep. the guy with the two uh, simultaneous ideas, he also, he's angled his camera so that you can see almost the entire flag that's draped uh, <laughs> in the background. But as a result, he he's, you know, significantly lower on the screen his head is. Yes. So in, in comparison to the other guys, he sort of looks like he's like poking up from underground. He would definitely have to aim higher were he in the cage. <laughs> yeah, he definitely would to take on these two giants. Yes. Yeah. Maybe it's role playing. <laughs> also very baffling in this imagery is that the guy with the I Heart Cops shirt has a picture over his shoulder of Casey Anthony, the woman who was <laughs> charged with killing her toddler, was eventually found not guilty of that. Uh, but yeah, that is a baffling choice for uh, hosting a podcast. Just a picture of Casey Anthony right behind you. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, that's totally normal stuff. Can, can you not see mine? I'm still, I, I have, I'm in the way, but you can now see mine. <laughs> yeah. Casey's everywhere. Men put her on the wall all the time who are normal. He has a hat that says, I love arguments.com. Oh, good. Which I can't even look into. Forget it. No, no, but no, he no. is a, he's a guy. He's a dude. And, um, they're cool. And, um, I mean, this is a pretty straightforward story. Dan got speared and they mag dumped. Like, what are you going to fucking say? They mag-dumped, and I like how he said that what they saw was the 13-foot guy, and then that he had six fingers. Like, in the middle of combat with a giant, they stopped and counted how many... Wait, how many... I just need to see. Is it five? Oh, shit, yo, it's like the Princess Bride guy. And it's just like, <laughs> why would you... It's Because they're clearly working backwards from the, the legend. It's like, why would you stop and notice exactly one more finger on the hand, you know, of yeah. the giant that you're fighting? I don't know if I would pick up on that in the moment, but I'm not a troop. <laughs> yeah, this... this this whole story is like if you started an exquisite corpse with the feet and yes. it's like it's kind of yes just all like reverse engineering very awkward but it is carried to this day by la marzulli mm -hmm. uh my favorite coffee machine mm -hmm. and he still makes youtube videos like there's a recent one in which he reads a skeptical article about his claims and explains that he's under attack by the deep state so let's get into the story and walk through it a 13 foot monster with red hair and hands with six fingers whose home was in the Afghanistan mountains, was allegedly killed up and covered up by the U.S. government. Killed up. That is according to a witness who claimed to have seen the killing in a YouTube interview, which has since been deleted. The military contractor claimed to have been present during the brutal slaughter of a killer he called the Kandahar Giant. In an interviewer, in an interview with YouTuber L.A. Marzulli, during my presentation, I circled back to the Kandahar Giant and, and talked about the way the game is played. When Richard Shaw and I released that in Watchers 10, it was unbelievable, the blowback that came, the pushback. Hey. I was contacted by a guy, which I could only assume was from the deep state, who told me in the first you know minute, basically threatened me three different ways how they could destroy me. And I, I publicly, I did it there at the conference and I've said it before, I publicly went out with it. So, you know, if I get arrested and they find kitty porn on my phone, you know, I don't have kitty <laughs> Put on my phone. Uh, <laughs> oh. Rewind. 
<laughs> oh, La Marzulli's greatest trick. <laughs> oh, uh, he did say the word though. Blowback. He said it. Yeah, he, he did. said a lot of interesting Which stuff. Which means he, I believe him, and he's an ally now. Well, the average listener to your show always says this: if they find kitty porn on my phone, it wasn't mine. It's it, the deep state trying to take me down. When was that video? When, when did he say that bit? This was uh, 2022. Okay, well, that's, yeah, that's very recent. Mm-hmm. I was trying to see the books on his, um, like his desk. It's it's a kind of chaotic uh, desk he's got there, but I think there's a book called Top Secret Slash Magic. Yeah. Magic with a J. I don't know if that's the correct spelling, but, or if this maybe references a, an alien. I think this looks like it's a book about aliens. Yeah. Majestic or Majestic 12. Yeah, something like that. And then he has another one just called The Mound Builders. I think he also has a bunch of like Indiana Jones, like prop replicas scattered about to sort of make it look like he's in some kind of, you know, archaeology, like office or study, something like that. It seems like it's very hard to get. I wonder if he has to move a bunch of things around just to get into his little position, you know, for his videos. Seems like it's a tight, tight squeeze in there. He's got some filing cabinets of stuff that he he will someday be accused of having that he never had. <laughs> yeah, actually, he yeah. had a group of aliens in there and the FBI went and replaced it all with child porn. Child pornography. <laughs> so but between Steve Quayle, this guy, and the three dudes that you saw, you can tell why this story just has not really taken off. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I think it's a cool story, so I hope somebody picks it up, like maybe the giant himself or just somebody sure. who's tall and has red hair. That would be enough. I honestly feel like you could get Mike Cernovich to believe yeah. in it. he might be a Nephilim. Yeah. He, he might have kitty porn on his phone. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Satire. <laughs> I love satire. Brendan, Noah, let's talk a little bit about the real Afghanistan, a country defined not by giants, but instead by geopolitical giants over the course of the last half century and beyond. Oh, I see what you did seamless. there. Oh, yeah. Great oh, seg. Yeah. That's, Great seg. That's a segue right there. <laughs> I want to start with the idea that religious extremism, especially Islamic fundamentalism, wasn't always a huge defining force in Afghanistan. Could you tell us a bit about the country's makeup before the Cold War and why it shifted towards that, especially in relation to Operation Cyclone? Yeah, the the concept that Americans have of Afghanistan at this point, certainly, but even by 2001 and to a certain degree in the 1990s, was that of an already war-torn place that had always uh, been racked with problems of, um, you know, a pre-modern culture, uh, a medieval culture, and that it was just one of those places where religious fanatics are the guys in charge. And in fact, uh, one of the big, you know, purposes of our season was to follow that portrayal or the supposed, you know, um, reality of Afghanistan that presents and find that, in fact, more or less that stereotype to the degree that it does exist is something that Americans made sure happened in the 1970s and the 1980s. Afghanistan up until that point was a sort of a neutral presence in the Cold War, although they favored the Soviets and the Soviets favored them. America didn't have much of an interest in Afghanistan. We were much more friendly with Pakistan once it was created after the partition of India for various reasons. And Afghanistan naturally gravitated toward the superpower right next door. They shared a border back then. It wasn't just Russia, it was the Soviet Union. So the Central Asian republics were right next door to Afghanistan. And it was a developing economy. And there were many projects uh, that went back a long ways to modernize the country. The British, before the Americans, had always tried to sabotage those efforts because they got along better with the more traditional sort of mercenary, conservative uh, tribal leaders 
in Afghanistan who were less interested in developing a modern economy and therefore one that could stand up to empires like the British. So in other words, this was a very different type of place. And sometimes you get a bit of this on the internet, um, you know, uh, sort of the meme that, that goes around of this is what Afghanistan looked like in 1978 or whatever. And it's, you know, women without any religious, you know, mandated headgear or, you know, modern institutions and schools. And while that's no doubt compressing a lot of other facts about the country and the makeup of the country. The countryside was always far more conservative and religious, which was an issue for modernizers in, in the capital. It does say something basically true, which is that the image we have of it is in fact a creation of the United States, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, and other allies that worked in the 1980s to overturn a progressive communist government that was too close to the Soviets by our estimation. And so they did this through something they called Operation Cyclone. So what was the idea here? Right. So that was basically conceived. I mean, Operation Cyclone was the name that was given to what was sort of more generally called the Afghan op after Reagan took over. Because once that happened, you know, it wasn't all of a sudden we began arming the Mujahideen in 1980 or 80, or rather in 81. It was a, a process that had begun under the Carter administration and was sort of envisioned by his national security advisor, um, Zbigniew Brzezinski. And Brzezinski, you know, he was a, a real hardliner. He wouldn't have looked out of place in the Reagan administration were it not for the fact that he was a social liberal. But he he got this thing going, essentially, in the at the critical moment, so that by the time that the, you know, cowboys of the Reagan era arrived, they had this, you know, they, they were expanding the budget with the assistance of other people we talk about in the show, uh, Congressman Charlie Wilson, whose goal at that point, you know, throughout the 80s, is they say, look, all, you know, what is called Operation Cyclone, this massive coordinated effort to get intel, weapons, other supplies to the Mujahideen is, from their perspective, like scoring the biggest body blows directly against the Soviet Union that, you know, America has going in the, on, in, in the Cold War. And that is sort of what, you know, like op that is what Operation Cyclone is. It's just viewed as a, a way to use the Afghan battlefield as an opportunity to just try and, you know, damage the Soviet Union in that decade. And so one fascinating tidbit in season four of Blowback is the debunking of a myth related to the movie Rambo 3. Can you tell us what happened there? Unfortunately, talking about, you know, more Afghanistan sort of Internet uh, pop culture side of things, you know, there's a very, very popular screenshot that goes around from the ending of Rambo 3 that, of course, contains the postscript to the film. This film was dedicated to the brave Mujahideen fighters of Afghanistan and People obviously know the general reference point, which is that we backed a bunch of unsavory religious fanatics at the time and touted them as freedom fighters only for them to later on forge a holy war against America. And while that is all true, the actual postscript that you've no doubt seen online is a hoax. And there is no proof that after the 9-11 attacks, home video releases changed the postscript to, you know, the, the story goes that they changed the postscript from Mujahideen to the brave people of Afghanistan. And um, yeah, there's just no, there's no evidence of that. There's no videotape that anyone's ever produced from, you know, uh, from after 2001 or September 2001 that shows a new postscript. There's no reviews from the time. In fact, reviews from the time say that the film was dedicated to the gallant people. So it was never dedicated to the Mujahideen. But as our buddy Will Menneker uh, said when we recently spoke to him, you don't need a postscript at the end of that movie to know that it was dedicated to the brave Mujahideen 
of <laughs> Afghanistan. It's one of the most successful and long-lasting examples of Hollywood getting in on the cultural moment and political moment to make a bunch of Vietnam movies, but about Soviet Union having their own Vietnam in Afghanistan, which is in fact a line in Rambo 3. And I, um, in a bonus episode for this season, spend a bit of time talking about um, Soldier of Fortune magazine, which spent a lot of uh, ink covering the production of Rambo 3, featuring an interview with Stallone. And I think it gives a good look at how, you know, like the, the this, there's a reason that this myth is, you know, to, to, to expand on Brennan's point and I think say something that he's said before is like, yeah, th there's a reason that this myth is so believable and that like, you know, there's a reason all these people would fall for what is probably one of the more effective Photoshop jobs of the last decade. It's spiritually true. Yes. Yes, exactly. It could be true, though, right? Because the world is so crazy now, dude. Well, the Stargate, you know, depending on <laughs> maybe there's some a VHS from the other dimension, from the Nephilim <laughs> dimension. Yeah, Rambo, just a shortened Nephilim. Yep. Yeah, they've just worn that VHS out. They love James Spader in that film. He's awesome. So to give us a bit of context before we talk a bit about the USSR occupation of Afghanistan, what was the Safari Club? Sure. So the Safari Club was a informal but very real association of different intelligence agencies and military leaders across a wide variety of governments. And it was organized by a former uh, senior French intelligence official. But the key players in it were the United States, Pakistan, and before he fell in 79, the Shah of Iran, uh, Saudi Arabia, and South Africa and Israel were involved, at, you know, to, to varying degrees. And they were, it's called the Safari club because its initial meetings took place at a safari like ranch in Africa owned by uh, Adnan Khashoggi a Saudi arms dealer who was involved of course in, in in supplying the Mujahideen and the safari club is a little bit of you know well that just sounds like conspiracy theory babble right and it's like well it, it actually no it was a real thing and we you know play the clip or we, we rather we um, recount what uh, a former Saudi intelligence chief said to a crowd at Georgetown in explaining it which was to say look you know in the 1970s after Watergate your government's hands were tied they couldn't do anything there was just too much scrutiny and so they began working more and more with foreign governments to do the things that they would have previously done themselves. And so you can think of the Safari Club as kind of a, a real place, location, and network that was activated for people to accomplish certain goals, all of which were about fucking the Soviet Union up, which was the whole point of it, was the basis for the association. Those were all the operations these guys were doing under its aegis. And it was, I mean, it, it was a very effective and a lot of the alliances that were drawn up from it, you know, for example, I mean, the US and Pakistan, they endure to this day, incredibly, in spite of, you know, many, many, many uh, reasons, including two twin tower sized ones, uh, for, for those alliances not to endure. So how does the USSR come to occupy Afghanistan from 79 to 89? And, and what was the United States involvement in that decade long conflict? The Soviets invade Christmas 1979, Christmas by the Western calendar. And um, it was ostensibly under the terms of a treaty between Afghanistan, the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan, which was a socialist Marxist government at, at that time, and the USSR to, to stabilize the country. That much is true, although the, um, the Soviets were actually quite keen on removing a particularly bloodthirsty strongman who identified as a communist, but had a lot of strange, to this day, sort of unresolved associations with the CIA, uh, who was chopping off a lot of heads in what he called a revolution and what others called a coup. 
And the Soviets didn't like that at all. Um, they were partial to a moderate uh, socialist faction of the Afghan Communist Party, and they wanted to get this guy out of there. At the same time, they were also getting pretty nervous about what had what America had been doing before the 80s even arrived, which is for the majority of the 70s, as the British had done, backing religious uh, and fanatical elements within Afghanistan to fight the progressive central government. There was more than just the kind of um, proto-Al-Qaeda types fighting the Marxist government and indeed the Soviet invasion that arrived in 79 onward. But the ones that came to the top, the commanders who eventually did really define and direct the so-called Mujahideen, the holy warriors or just fighters, these were really criminal elements. Uh, and the guys that we picked, that Saudi Arabia picked, that Pakistan picked and funded were guys like Gobadin Hekmachar, who was uh, sort of the original figure who would throw acid in the faces of women for being un-Islamic. Ahmed Shah Massoud, a drug runner whose you know um, paramilitary was known for sexual violence um, in in prosecuting whatever battle they were in. Guys like um, Abdul uh, Sayaf, who was a mentor to Osama bin Laden. These were the fighters and the commanders that we, through the Safari Club uh, and then a vast architecture of of Operation Cyclone, that we pitted against the Soviet occupation. And so, while the Soviets intended to only stay for six months or a year, and actually never really wanted to go in in the first place, if people listen to the show, they can hear the great reluctance, the many many votes that the Politburo had against going in, no matter how many times they were asked by the Afghan government. Eventually, things were so chaotic over their border, they thought, this is probably going to be bad, but it could be worse if we do nothing. And so, right or wrong, and it did, of course, by many within the Soviet Union, turn out to be a huge error, they decided to get involved. And they were not able to withdraw within six months. They were not able to withdraw within a year. In fact, it was a decade almost that they were there. And they sued for peace many times. They tried to bring to the UN within the first, second, third year, tried to bring peace deals. But the United States, they had a live one. And Pakistan was using Afghanistan as their own wedge against India and control in the long war, the kind of cold war between Pakistan and India. Saudi Arabia was spreading its influence through the religious politics that were sort of reaching new and more toxic levels in Afghanistan. So a lot of people had lobbies, a lot of countries on the American side had reasons to keep this war going for 10 years. And indeed it did. And it, and it cost anywhere from 600,000 or 500,000 to a million lives. And only until 1989 did the Soviets withdraw. And when they did, they did actually withdraw very, in a very orderly way. And the government that they left in place stunned everyone by surviving for several years um, and keeping things together. But the support for the Mujahideen did not stop. And that's where you get into the 90s and the warlord years that toppled that government. So QAnon supporters, you know, fast forwarding past, you know, the fall of the USSR and a couple of other big uh, historic uh, moments. But I, I should say that that's where we get the Taliban, by the way, is what I should put at the end of that, is that what people then think of as the, the Afghanistan that we met on 9-11, that, that's where that happens, is the continued support for religious politics or re, uh, religious and criminal politicians within Afghanistan by the United States. The Taliban rise up to kind of control and put order to the country. We then welcome in al-Qaeda and, you know, off we go. And so the United States, having basically forced the or, you know, encouraged the USSR into their own Vietnam as they perceived it, surely they wouldn't be dumb enough to then go into that country afterwards and start fighting the same forces, right? That's not that's not what happened later under Bush. We would never do that. I find the idea offensive, <laughs> frankly. There's giants there. Why would you ever go over there? Yeah, it's a dangerous place. You got to aim high. <laughs> we aimed high, all right. 
So, yeah, you know, speaking of this, like QAnon supporters, they often hate Bush and Obama, but then they love Trump. So can you just tell us a bit about how foreign policy in relation to Afghanistan evolved through those three presidencies? Sure. So starting with Bush, basically Afghanistan from the moment that the war began was already like the unloved second child, even though it was the, you know, it came before the Iraq war. From, you know, like like the ashes, Ground Zero was still smoldering, and they were already figuring out, like, how we could go to war with Iraq. And you could argue, like, you know, there is, it is still up for debate, generally speaking, about, like, why did we invade Iraq? We know why we invaded Afghanistan, right? Like, to go, to get rid of Al-Qaeda and take out, to, to eliminate Osama bin Laden. Uh, and ultimately, you know, we, we made, you know, it was a bad war goal, perhaps, but it was also declared, we're going to, we're going to eliminate the Taliban. We're not going to make it possible for them to, you know, lay down arms. And the sort of initial process as the war unfolded under Bush was like, well, the Taliban collapsed pretty quick and they captured Kabul, but they found that like essentially while they could control and secure Kabul for the most part, they had no ability over, you know, the course of the first few years to actively, you know, secure the country uh, in the long run. And when they did secure the country, it basically happened because they began relying on the same warlords or the sons and cousins of the warlords whom they had relied on years earlier, who, you know, would do things like use the U.S. troops and special forces to settle scores, you know, with rival clan leaders and things like that. And the Bush administration basically let the, you know, like the perspective, broadly speaking, I think like like shared in, in certainly from Washington was that like the Afghanistan war was the good war. And so as the Iraq war became more clearly like a, like a, a disaster, it became, you know, like the, the, the rhetoric and the message domestically was for people to or was for like, you know, whatever the next administration would be to, you know, pay more attention to Afghanistan. And Obama came in promising that he was going to, you know, we're going to we're going to look at this again in Afghanistan. We're going to fix the playbook. And it ultimately, you know, it never really actually amounts to that. And in fact, like the only thing that meaningfully changes in Afghanistan, aside from like, you know, perhaps like, gra like not perhaps like gradual reduction in troops, is that the Predator Drone Program and the Assassinations Program, you know, like the Predator Drone Program is the CIA's baby. It basically becomes like that plus the combination of like night raids. Uh, quite famously, which became in time conducted by Afghan commandos that were trained and supervised by the CIA and other American military leaders. You know, these these people, like, or rather these instruments of policy, like that is what policy innovation looks like under Obama. You know, they, they cycle through generals, McChrystal, Petraeus, but like essentially they, you know, they make this whole, you know, like there's even Brennan made this, uh, you know, we talked and we go through this in the show, but just how, you know, they made this whole to do about how we're ending the war in Afghanistan in a second term. And like, it doesn't, you know, it's, it's not, it, it doesn't really happen. Uh, the war doesn't end. Our American troop presence is still there. So by the time Trump inherits it, he recognizes a stinker when he sees one and just immediately, you know, he, he, and, and the military leadership in a lot of ways agrees with him because, you know, they let it happen, the withdrawal, like they agree that it's a failed mission and, you know, they've been there for a decade and a half already. And so it's under Trump that like, you know, like what becomes, and I'll kick it to Brendan to just talk about the fall of the, like the actual, like, you know, Biden failure of it, but like the, the, the key gist I think of the Trump years was that like they negotiated and they made it clear they were going to withdraw, which is to say that like, so going into Biden's presidency, there should not have been any surprise at what was about to happen once the American military presence was removed from the equation. 
Yeah, I mean, under Obama, corruption got even worse than under Bush, if only because of accumulated, you know, year upon year of of the way that we had set up the government under Bush. But corruption was was getting worse. Um, obviously, as Noah said, drones were introduced. Uh, it became just sort of a fixture that the Obama administration kept saying it was going to fix and do the smart way, but um, never made any actual progress on. And so when Trump gets in office, he, as Noah said, recognized he could probably get a lot of points, although it's interesting that he, he didn't do it in time. He might have gotten slammed in the way that Biden did, but he thought he could win some serious political capital by getting us out of our longest war. And so he was very adamant to get negotiations going. And he did. There were negotiations in uh, 2018 and 19 that bore fruit that essentially, you know, cut a deal between the Taliban and the United States. But what was trickier was getting a deal between the Taliban and the Afghan government itself. Uh, in other words, there was peace made between the occupier and the insurgency, but not between these, you know, legitimate government of Afghanistan. And so uh, Trump, you know, wasn't able to withdraw in time. That was left on the agenda for Biden. He did it. But he um, basically just didn't want to give the, this is boiling a lot down, but Biden basically, his White House didn't want to give the appearance that um, the government wasn't completely ready to take over by starting things slowly and in a staggered way, which, for example, is what the Soviet Union did. Oh, and also Biden hated Karzai and there was no basis for cooperation between the two. Well, Karzai was from, long gone by that time. But Sorry, not Karzai, um, um, Ghani. Yeah, there was a lot of enmity between like the Kabul government and the Washington at that time, as opposed to years earlier when Karzai, because the Americans were, you know, like they viewed Karzai as being more important for the regional strategy, they leaned on him then. So there was also there had been some drift by then. Yeah, and it was a uh, it was you know a, a very quick and pretty disastrous withdrawal. But the sort of point of our show and what made us actually want to do this season was you can certainly criticize that, and many guests on our show do. But ultimately, um, it's very difficult to imagine how any withdrawal after 20 years of occupying the country was going to go down as anything other than than a Taliban takeover. And I suppose you could imagine one version of it, but Biden and the White House didn't really seem that interested in avoiding it. They kind of let her rip. And so now we have the Taliban back in power all those years later. And I think that there's signs, I wouldn't want to say anything too quickly, but I think there's signs that we will be, you know, in a kind of frenemy status as we were before September 2001 with the Taliban. There's things we're working on them with, uh, and there's guys we're working on with who we said we would never work with before and after 9-11. So it's uh, a very, very uh, twisting and bizarre saga, but, you know, it, it may not actually be completely over yet. And so, like, I loved hearing Michael Flynn, General Michael Flynn's name come up because he's such like a big presence in the kind of QAnon supporter idea of like the cosmology of power and, and heroes. But he comes up in a very different context on your podcast when he was actually very involved in relation to the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan and, and uh, the, the occupation. I mean, I, I definitely think that like Flynn, it's hard for it's really hard for people to remember this now. But when Flynn was in uniform, he was viewed by his peers and by a lot of people who, you know, would, would consider themselves, and frankly, I would consider in the know, to be very capable. And he was very, very famous for, uh, like, like he was became notorious, rather, where I think, like, you know, a legitimately public figure after a 2010 paper that he wrote that was, like, uh, while he was the head of intelligence, uh, army intelligence in Afghanistan, basically saying that, like, you know, doing a kind of John Paul Van, uh, a sort of famous uh, soldier colonel in the Vietnam era, who, you know, made a similar kind of like raging dissent, just saying like, we're losing. This is bullshit. This is all fucked. 
And I think that there is a kind of interesting and sort of credible thread that you can link Flynn to, you know, and also Flynn's brothers are, you know, like are on Stan McChrystal's staff. And so when Stan McChrystal gets fired, the Flynn's lose out in power. So there is also like a kind of, you know, like Afghanistan perhaps had a big role in breaking Michael Flynn's brain because no matter how many people they killed, no matter how many quote unquote terrorists they brought in, nothing got better. And um, it was also where, you know, like his meal ticket got like really screw you know the careers got derailed for a time Mm -hmm. and so you know another kind of big thing at the time when when you know obama took out bin laden and a year and a half later we got zero dark 30 which i learned on blowback was uh you know let's say co-authored with the cia so how factual is this movie perfectly factual right it's unimpeachable. Um, <laughs> you got James Gandolfini. You know, he's I'll believe any deep state propaganda if you, <laughs> you know, you give me James Gandolfini telling you the event. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 a it's a state directed, you know, official history baked into obviously a very high octane thriller from Hollywood. And, you know, Catherine Bigelow's seems to have really found a niche in that with Hurt Locker and um, Zero Dark Thirty, or she did for a time. She's a great director. I, you know, I love Near Dark and a lot of her other movies, but I think that they got really good at massaging, you know, state narratives or whatever you want to call it into really well done and slick Hollywood vehicles for these stories. So, you know, there's a lot in there about torture and uh, how the torture regime led to the capture and then the courier and the detective work. There's an entirely different bunch of reporting on on the Bin Laden, uh, not just the raid and the capture, but on what his status was before he was he was killed. That came from reporters like Cy Hirsch and Carlotta Gall of The New York Times that, that we cite more of um, in, in, the, in the episodes pertaining to that. I think one thing like Zero Dark Thirty should be viewed as part of a like, you know, pretty large universe of accounts from people who had a hand in staging the operation, the so-called operation to, you know, to to get bin Laden and who, you know, have all told this, you know, like a story that has been revised or falsified at various times. And I think that the, you know, like a lot about what happened bureaucratically to find Bin Laden, I'm sure is very fairly represented in Zero Dark Thirty. But I tend to, you know, I tend to believe like Cy Hirsch's account pretty strongly, both because nobody has been able to knock down specific details from it. And, you know, if you believe Hirsch's account, then like what you see in Zero Dark Thirty, it, it you know, like the dog don't hunt. So, yeah. And, and, and just to be clear, <laughs> rather than just saying it, it was it was co-authored by the CIA, I just want to be clear. I mean, there's it's been reported that the CIA has Hollywood handlers. Yeah. Jason Leopold's FOIA and like showed that like Mark Bowl, who wrote the movie, like, you know, the, the CIA supervised the script. They wind and dined. Yeah. They wind and dined the directors. And there's an entire branch of both the DOD and the CIA specifically who consult with Hollywood in order to, as I'm sure maybe you guys have talked about this, in order for filmmakers to get access, uh, not only to perhaps if they want, in their view, the most accurate, up-to-date portrayals that, you know, may or may not be coming from the DOD and the CIA, but if they perceive that, they, they need access. Also, it can literally make the difference between you getting the, the, the proper, you know, vehicles and locations and stuff. And that's, they're the gatekeepers for a lot of, you know, obviously very um, ambitious storytellers in Hollywood who want access to those kinds of things. But if you do that, you have to play ball. And if you want to make the, you know, definitive account of how we got Bin Laden, you know, you you may find it, I guess, in, in Catherine Bigelow's case, she found it worthwhile to work with the CIA rather than forge a different you know narrative without their help. But that meant that they supervised the script and they took stuff out and they added stuff in. And this happens a lot. You know, they don't have to censor it after the fact because most of these movies, including Transformers, they um, are writing it with the studios from the get go. 
And one one last thing I'll say, like a quick fact, is just the movie came out like 18 months after the raid. Yep. Mm-hmm. Like I, I really cannot stress enough, like how crazy it is that like we got such a you know polished Hollywood, you know Oscar nominated uh, Hollywood version of that event, you know uh, that advanced such a specific version of events about how it happened and why it happened. It's it's what people didn't have for the Iraq War. You know, we talked about that in season one, where there really was no reckoning or. No, I, mean, I don't know how you would reckon with that in some kind of tidy way as a, as a country. But with Afghanistan, it was like, well, the war's not over, but we can kind of pretend it's over now because we got Bin Laden. So there's this conveniently a, a nice Hollywood movie to wash it down. There's, you know, the president that at least a much more uh, liberal minded block of voters could say, you know, finished the job and the war on terror. We can all kind of put that behind us now. And and it was the, the film was definitely a part of that, of that kind of national uh, hangover going away from the war on terror. And nowhere to be found is the Pakistani intelligence guy who defected and actually gave up the position of bin Laden, right? Like, that's all depicted as detective work. Yep, correct. That's like one of the key features of the Zero Dark Thirty narrative is that, like, there was both torture and surveillance of a courier network that led to the capture of bin Laden when the reality reported by Hirsch and also backed up by Carlotta Gall, the New York Times, is that it was a walk-in who was paid. And, you know, like with the raid, you know, which which means that what the raid was, was cleaning up a loose end in a sense, was getting rid of the yeah. very inconvenient fact that bin Laden had been holed up in a compound with armed protection, you know, minutes from, you know, steps from, in the words of a fucking Zillow listing, steps from like the Pakistani <laughs> West Point. Also, I would just say that the, the, the film is effective in a big way because it's not a, a Daily Wire movie, you know, I mean, to say the least. Yeah, it's not a Kevin Sorbo feature. It gives this sheen of, and we know this is all kind of fucked up. You know, we know torture's fucked up. And our, our fighters, you know, they aren't perfect. And maybe maybe we shouldn't have done this, but damn it, this is the truth. And we're going to show you the real gritty, you know, unvarnished version. And, and in a sense, I mean, you know, that's a more advanced type of, uh, I don't want to get on some big ad buster's screed, but I mean, that is a more advanced and sophisticated type of propaganda where you do admit the kind of warts and all of things, which allows the viewer to then, you know, fall hook, line and sinker for the more important claim, which is that this is, this is worth it, even if we have to cry about it later. Um, which is yeah. very different from the, say, the the right wing Red Scare movies, you know, when it's a binary struggle. I think the propaganda mm-hmm. has evolved with the times in that way. And it is effective. Yeah, you mentioned how there's nothing like this for Iraq, because I mean, even the Hollywood writers, I don't think could make a cool movie out of Saddam Hussein being pulled out of a hole and hung in like a dark shack, basically. No, but they did make Three Kings. That movie's great, <laughs> but that, that, that movie's great. But of course, it's before the Iraq war. And I think that the David O. Yes. Russell actually supported the war in the beginning because <laughs> he thought, you know, after making Three Kings, you know, Saddam was a pretty unsavory guy. And he thought, well, this is a good thing. But the uh, the movie that God, what was the movie we watched, Noah, for season one, the Sean Penn diplomat movie? Fair game. Fair game. And then they tried to make it like a sexy thing about the whistleblowers. Um, oh, yeah, the Valerie Plame thing. The Valerie Plame uh, affair. But it was, again, kind of localized. Which is like, in retrospect, was just like Scooter. It was, was like Carl Rove and Dick Cheney being catty dicks and fucking yeah. over somebody who was being mean to them in the press. But anyway, yeah, that that movie is um, is an interesting case study. Well, I was just I was gonna say I do think that you could make it a good Iraq War thing. I just think it's like you know what is the form of it? It would just have to be like a six part like you know come and see style. Like it's just something that our culture is not capable of producing in like a really serious way on scale. Like we make tons of huge war movies, none of them are meaningfully introspective. 
There was another, uh, a lesser known CIA op in um, Zero Dark Thirty. I don't know if you guys know, but this was the transition of uh, Chris Pratt uh, as a kind of goofy, uh, sort of overweight, <laughs> lovable uh, television uh-huh. show character into a muscly, sort of gritty, uh, you yeah. know, leading actor type. Now he would then so go true. on to star in the oh, in the God. Marvel uh, in the Marvel franchise as Star Lord. Uh, and Chris Pratt okay. is also, you know, he's very religious. Um, he often talks about religion uh, in his acceptance mm-hmm. speeches and that couldn't have been possible uh, had he not uh, sort of been portrayed as you know a gritty uh, navy seal in the zero dark 30 film i mean this this was the definitive moment when he went from tv star uh, to movie star the cia probably also taught him to speak to raptors because that's <laughs> something that they've been looking into for a while i wonder if that works on nephilim what he does in those movies where he just puts his hand out every fucking yeah. time there's a dinosaur he just puts his hand out <laughs> How yeah. stupid is that? We do need a Nephilim Wrangler. So just to kind of wrap all of this up, basically, you know, in this story of U.S. involvement in Afghanistan, you've got rigged elections, you've got mainstream media cover-ups, you've got propaganda movies uh, made by Hollywood, you've got, you know, all of this kind of hidden cruelty and uh, the support of, you know, extremist religious forces within a foreign country, all of which you see kind of scrambled up and fucked up in the QAnon lore. Mm. And so one of the things that struck me listening to season four of Blowback, which blowback.show, go check it out and uh, go pay for it, good listener, was just how good you guys were at connecting the dots of often disparate events over the course of half a century. And what we're studying, our fucking topic, which I regret to this day, and it's been five years of my life now, is people attempting to do the same thing, but failing horribly, you know, falling for fucking blurry JPEGs and putting Mm. together connections that aren't there. And I know this is a broad question, but do you think that the explosion of conspiracy theories in the United States are a kind of blowback for the decades of propaganda, covert ops, and in a general sense as well, do you think people being so far off track is useful on some level to like the the kind of military and or kind of defense deep state? I think uh, one thing I say often nowadays when we get interviewed is is that our show is obviously called Blowback. It's a good, it's a punchy title. And there are times when we're looking at the clinical sense of that Chalmers Johnson term, CIA jargon, blowback, unintended consequences due to a policy of interference. But there's a lot of times when we find it's not that simple and that there's a little bit more sinister forces at work that aren't simply, oops, you know, we did this thing a long time ago and now it's biting us in the ass. I think that's an oversimplification. There's a lot of examples of that misapprehension in this season, which is thought of as the uber blowback. You know, the one thing everyone knows is that we gave these guys guns and stingers and and legitimacy and then they do 9-11 later on, right? But um, I would say similarly that there's no doubt, you know, an incoherent politics in America that's festered and grown that... You know, you could spend and you have spent, I'm sure, hours and hours wading through and diagnosing in in many ways. It's a failure of I mean, it's a it's what happens in a failed state. Uh, and, you know, smaller countries, less rich countries, they, they have this stuff, too, where you go out on the street and you hear any crazy theory about what could be happening because the president fled the country, you know, or there's a new currency out and blah, blah, blah. It's not just the Iraqi dinars, you know, with the uh, Trump mm-hmm. revaluing chaos and, and a breakdown of, of political coherence creates alternate explanations that are, you know, more satisfying for all kinds of reasons, gratifying all, all this. I would only add that much like how we find sometimes it's not simply blowback geopolitically or whatever in our show, I, I think there is also a utility in this incoherence that is obviously quite useful to the 
Matt Getzes and the Marjorie Taylor Greens. We all know that. But I think it's it's you know, we know that uh, not just QAnon, but even more like militant. I, I get you know, I don't know all the different permutations of QAnon, but um, old fashioned white supremacist groups, you know, there's FBI informants who turn out to be leading the groups for many years. There's a very complicated relationship, ironically enough, between the deep state and these, you know, movements, so-called, that are claiming to expose the deep state. And so I-, I would say that, of course, it's a symptom of a diseased political situation. But there are also ways in which there's been a lot of, uh, you know, what do they call it? Shit coding, you yes. know, and that you get QAnon talking enough about stuff. Uh, if you, as I'm sure you found, you slip a couple legitimate issues in there, all of a sudden to talk about that issue in an unorthodox way, you're now kind of like, you sound like QAnon. Like, oh, what yeah. are you talking about? I heard that in QAnon. Or if Tucker Carlson says that X, Y, and Z happened with something, uh, you know, if he says the JFK situation should be looked at more closely, uh, you know, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, geez, you, you think the JFK was, was shady? Well, you sound like Tucker Carlson. When, of course, I remember him saying that uh, JFK conspiracists were kooks two years ago when it was useful for him to say that mm-hmm. against the loopy left, you know. And so I, I guess my reaction to that is, of course, it's political rot, but it's also something that we find in, the, in, in our show, which is something that's that's it's useful to to certain you know unsavory parts of the 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 public state and the um the uh the not so public state that we live under yeah i've always personally at least thought it was interesting that the intelligence agencies or uh, the department of defense or anybody wouldn't you know figure out who qanon is i mean if they if they don't have the technical capabilities to do so like what are we paying for and if they don't have the you know the know-how to do so then i, I don't know I've always thought that that was really strange that you have this this sort of anonymous poster that, uh, you know, is creating such a massive uh, movement that's actually leading to pockets, pockets of violence and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, bigger uh, events, obviously, like like January 6th. Mm. And yet, you know, the communications that, uh, you know, have been foiled uh, from the or, or have been released uh, from the government about QAnon are, are very vague and they don't really seem to have any interest in exposing who it is. Well, I also I think that they have a I don't I, like the FBI investigates cases and then it puts those cases together for prosecutors to follow through on indictments. So, when the FBI is looking at QAnon and they're looking at like what are the indictable offenses here? They're not mm-hmm. looking at it like, you know, like they may rhetorically accept or, you know, appreciate and even in their communications describe it as a centrally derived, you know, like, you know, thing involving this, you know, pseudonymous post- or, or whomever, but the way that they will relate to it will be that, like, you know, somebody gets trafficked, somebody gets murdered, somebody robs a bank, something that falls into their jurisdiction, you know, like, and, and I'm obviously oversimplifying here. But then, as they build a case and they go into these things, I think what makes it interesting and sort of how it's clearly revealed is that, like, they don't have a, pro- a wider perspective on this. All you have are, like, teams of chuds putting together cases to try and see, you know, what they can make stick, largely in response response to like wherever external pressure happens to draw attention with sort of January 6th being obviously like, you know, literally the nay plus ultra. You could not possibly mm-hmm. get that dynamic except on a bigger scale. So the, the thing will just happen over and over again because like, you know, none of the environmental factors is, are addressed. But because like the FBI's job here is not to actually investigate this thing. It's not even to punish people who commit meaningful offenses. It is to like collect evidence to build cases that can address, you know, whatever are the specific offenses that they are pressured Mm. to investigate. 
Much to think about. Gentlemen, where can people follow you guys and subscribe to Blowback? I actually have a request for Brendan on this one. Brendan has perfected of late his William Friedkin. And so I wanted to ask if he could do yes. the Blowback plug uh, in his Friedkin voice. Yes, please. Yeah, because the new Exorcist came out and I, I hear it's you know mm-hmm. not so good. Um, and so I was sending Noah from beyond the grave, like William Friedkin talking about the, the new movie. And I was just indulging myself. Okay, let me think here. All you have to do is go because, see, I'm going into Trump is the problem because they, they <laughs> yeah. actually yeah, have a similar dude, cadence. Oh my God, it's really close. I was just yeah. watching an interview with him very recently. So this is, this is kind of freaky. Okay, sorry, go ahead. When I recorded the podcast with Bill Blatty, And Noah Colwyn had a smaller role, but he was still very important. I said, you know, we got to we got to put this on like a website. So I said, "Okay, here we go. Blowback.show. That's where people sign up. You get a lot of bonus content. And, um, you know, it's like. When you, sorry, I can't, I can't, no, no, cut, cut all of this. I am so fucking zonked. I can't do a bit about William Freakin right now. Just cut all that. No, very good. And it's all staying in. Go to blowback.show, lots of extras and subscribe to our podcast to watch the blowback hosts fuck up. This is where you can come see the bloopers. We've got the behind the scenes exclusive uh, failure at the Friedkin. I would say not a failure. I would say I closed my eyes and I saw him. I saw him in an interview chair, you know, casually sort of gesturing and, you know, belittling um, uh, the director of uh, Drive and uh, uh, the other uh, Neon Dragon or whatever it was We shot a scene for the DVD, (laughs) and it's a new scene, and if you look closely, okay, behind Regan, the little girl possessed by a demon, if you look in the window... You can see a Nephilim, and we're putting it on the DVD. It's called The Version You've Never Seen. That's it. That's my, I, I think I brought it back a little bit. Okay, thank you. No, I, I, that was, uh, thank you, Brendan. Thank you both for coming on the show, Noah, Brendan. Thanks for listening to an episode of the QAA podcast. You can go to patreon.com slash QAnonAnonymous and subscribe for five bucks a month. You can get access there to the full feed, which includes an extra episode for every regular one and access to our archive of premium episodes, plus all of our mini series like Trickle Down, Man Clan, and The Spectral Voyager. We've also got a website, QAnonAnonymous.com. Listener, until next week, may the deep dish bless you and keep you. It's not a conspiracy. It's fact. And now, today's auto cue. In the book of Genesis, it says that the sons of God came into the daughters of men. They created a hybrid offspring who were called the Nephilim, or the fallen ones. They're referred to as the giants, or the mighty ones. Some believe they were between 8 and 15 feet tall. This is handed down, not only in the Bible, this is also handed down in Sumerian languages that some of the gods had sex with humans and the offsprings were giants. Mythology is full of giants and we have to look at these old myths with modern languages. Change the word of angel into extraterrestrial. In the beginning of time, extraterrestrials had sex with humans and the product of this sexual contact were giants. Is it possible that as geneticists continue to decode the human genome, they will find 
that among our various hominid ancestors is a missing link to enormous beings from another world. Ancient DNA is perhaps, for me, the most important area of study in all of my work. Because there is the potential chance here that we could find direct evidence of the ancestors of modern humans. I suspect we'll find lineages of a race of giants. Could it be that just like some humans have traces of Neanderthal DNA, there could still be similar traces of alien human giants that scientists have yet to discover? Ancient astronaut theorists believe the answer is a profound yes, and suggest further insights could be revealed in early Judaic texts, which give a curious description of the world's first man, otherwise known as Adam.